I got a couple things I want to talk about before we get into the teaching part today. First off, both of, both of them come next Sunday, and I'd like to give you a heads up. Uh, first off, next Sunday night at 8 o'clock, we're going to start reading through the Bible out loud. It'll take about 76 hours. If you're new to the church, um, we've been doing this, I think, for five years now. Here's why. I want you to understand. This is not because this is what we do. I want you to understand why we do it. See, we are convinced that what I hold in my hand is the only physical source of absolute truth on this planet. And because of that, our act of worship is to treat it accordingly. So we're going to read it out loud as an act of worship. Let there be no mistake. It's not ritual. It's an act of worship. So we're going to commit next Sunday night, starting at 8 o'clock until we finish, we're going to read the Word of God out loud nonstop 24 hours until we get to the end. Usually that leads us to about midnight on Wednesday night. Genesis to Revelation. It's a whole lot of reading. And we're asking you to be a part of that. You can read in 30-minute segments and sign up uh, in the Welcome Center. And uh, somebody says, well, you know, I don't, I, I don't read very good. Um, just trust that God will show you what to do. Or somebody says, you know, I'll probably get that section that's got all those big names. Well, just do what I do. Make them up. Okay, just if you don't know, just make it up. Say something. All right, it's fun that way. So I'm encouraging you, we've got this week to fill up those sheets, and we'll start next Sunday night at 8 o'clock. Second thing is this, next Sunday is Building Fun Sunday. I don't normally talk about this, but uh, we, are, we are within a few months of paying off this entire debt, campus, everything, and we're really close. That's $2,250,000 is almost totally paid off. And uh, next Sunday's offering goes totally to that remaining debt. Um, and I just want you to be aware of that because a lot of people like me would like to get that just be gone. Let's get it gone. And uh, we're getting real close to being able to do that. And I want to let the Lord lead you accordingly for next Sunday's offering. Do you know John 3.16? Are you sure? Do you want to? They hold up posters. I, I specifically found this scene. They hold up posters at ball games. Have you ever wondered why? You ever wonder who they are? Who are these people that go to a ball game and hold up a poster? What are they saying? Why are they saying it? Did anybody pay attention to it? That that girl behind, she's she's texting, I think. She doesn't care. She's probably wondering why she can't see the ball game for his sign. Do you understand John 3.16? Well, let me read it to you because then I have another question. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. It says, For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish. Now, I think that's a grand idea. I don't want to perish. Everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, the reason I ask that question, do you know John 3.16, is I've met a lot of people that understand John 3.16, but they have never studied John 3.16 in the context of John chapter 3. 
Do you know the context of this verse? It's very important. In fact, I'll say you'll never truly understand John 3.16 until you put it in its context. Do you know John 3.14 and 15, 17 and 18? Can and does this verse stand alone in the Bible as a proclamation that God loved the world? Not just certain people of the world, but the world. Yes, 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 yes. Does it? Can it stand alone in its own power and authority? Yeah, it can. But this verse can never truly be understood until you put it in the context of John chapter 3 and all that was happening. And what is that? Last Sunday, I began what we'll finish today. Last Sunday on Easter, I introduced this conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Jewish Pharisee who will one day believe that Jesus is truly the Messiah. The verse preceding this verse, John 3.16, the verse preceding this verse is where we ended last Sunday. Today I want to put these verses together in context as we move through the Gospel of John together. Remember, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus when he says, these verses, I'm going to read 12 through 16 to give you the context. Jesus said, I have spoken to you, Nicodemus, of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Now, now what's the context? You have to be born again. And Nicodemus is not grasping this idea of being born a second time. I have spoken to you of earthly things, but you do not believe. So how... How are you going to be able to handle it if I talk about heavenly things? Verse 13. And then he says, then he gives a heavenly thing description. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, and whoever, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, Jesus acknowledges that Nicodemus is struggling with the message. If you can't believe the earthly things, how are you going to get the spiritual things? So I'm going to ask you a question. In light of that acknowledgement, why didn't Jesus just say, I'm going to be nailed to the cross as the Passover lamb of God? Instead, he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So if Nicodemus was already struggling, you think he got this one? Nicodemus already had a headache about the concept of being born again. He, was, he wasn't sure how he was going to explain that to his mother. So the idea that somehow or another, he's just as Moses lifted up a snake on a stick in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And by the way, no one has ever gone into heaven and come back from heaven except the Son of Man. Nicodemus is already struggling with the first part. And now Jesus gives him these next two parts. Let's break down the context of this world-changing discussion between Nicodemus and Jesus. It begins with this. No one has ever gone into heaven. Jesus is a man standing in front of Nicodemus. And he's telling Nicodemus about 
the ability for him to go between heaven and earth. No one has ever gone into heaven. The New Living Translation then adds and comes back. No one's ever gone up to heaven and then come back from heaven. That doesn't mean that no one has ever gone into heaven. We know that Enoch, we read the Old Testament, Enoch was raptured into heaven. That's not what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Elijah was taken up into heaven and got to see glorious things. But guess what? As of now, neither one of them have returned. Jesus is talking about somebody having the ability to go into heaven and then come back from heaven. Only the Son of Man. We know that Isaiah had a vision of the throne of God. But he didn't go and come back. Nicodemus can't understand earthly things. How can he understand heavenly things unless, 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 what if somebody came down from heaven to explain it? Nicodemus, if you can't understand earthly things, how will you ever understand heavenly things? Unless somebody came from heaven to tell you what it's like there. Now, finish the sentence of Jesus, verse 13. No one has ever gone to heaven and returned. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven. Isaiah and Ezekiel told of their visions of heaven, but their experience, their exposure to the throne of God was limited at best. So God was about to do something. Jesus is revealing it to Nicodemus. God knew that mankind would never be able to approach the glory of God. So God plans to send his glory to us. He came down dressed in human flesh. The son didn't just have the vision of the father. Listen, the son didn't just have a vision of the father. He didn't have a dream of the father, but the son is connected to the father in ways and time that our human mind cannot comprehend. Do you doubt that? Can you comprehend how Nicodemus is talking to Jesus and Jesus is from heaven and Jesus is going to go back from heaven to earth and then come back again? Until you understand John 1, 1, you will never understand John 3, 16. How does the Gospel of John open? Let me read it again. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life. The Word gave what? life. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. Nicodemus, you can't understand heavenly things, and you are one of Israel's elite and learned. Nicodemus, the people of earth can't understand heavenly things, so I, Jesus, have come from heaven to explain it to you, Nicodemus. Let me put it this way. When I look at this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus revealed to Nicodemus that mankind was going to need someone to look up to. Because in the middle of this conversation, before John 3.16, what does he tell Nicodemus? 
He tells him you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says something, almost looks strange unless you get it. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus knew that mankind was going to need someone to look up to. Someone. Verse 13 through 15. This is all leading up to John 3, 16. No one has ever gone to heaven and returned. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him will have what? Say it out loud, church. Eternal life. The Son of Man came down from heaven. Why? So you could look up to Him. The Son of Man was lifted up to the cross. Why? So you could look up to Him. Look up to Him why and look up to Him how. Because that's what I want to look at. Look up to Him why and look up to Him how. What does it mean? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent. Do you understand? Leading up to John 3.16 is Jesus' announcement that just as Moses put a snake on a stick, held it up, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Do you understand that you can't read John 3.16 without reading that? you got to get past that to get to 16. You know what it means? Look up at him why. Look up at him how. This is the purpose of the Gospel of John, which is actually the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the one that came down from heaven so that you and I could have someone to look up to. Look up to him why. All right, let's go to the first one. Why? Why do I need someone to look up to? Why does Jesus connect Moses holding a stick up in the wilderness with a bronze serpent around it? I told you last week, but let me give you the highlights. They're traveling through the wilderness and they're in rebellion against God. They've seen the miracles and they're still in rebellion. So God sends a plague of snakes. Let me tell you what plague you don't want. The plague of snakes. God sends a plague of snakes into the camp, and the snakes are poisonous. They're venomous. They are biting people, and people are dropping dead, dropping dead, dropping dead. Snakes are everywhere. The people cry out to Moses. Moses cries out to God. God says to Moses, make a bronze serpent on a staff, hold the staff up, and when the people look up, they will see the staff, they will be healed. Now, I told you, that's 1,500 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And why does he bring that up to a man named Nicodemus right before John 3.16? Do you get it? Have you got it yet? So why do we need someone to look up to? You ready? Say, uh-huh. Because we're all dying. And they were dying. And they needed someone to look up to and heal their death. You know, most people don't want to acknowledge it and most people don't want to talk about it, but I'm going to tell you the truth. Everybody in this room today, you're dying. 
including me. We're dying. We are snake bit. And we're dying. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Why? So that everyone who believes in him would not die, but have eternal life. So, so that's the why. That's the why. That's the why. Now, what about the how? Look up at him how. It's called faith. It's called believing. You see, you'll never truly look up. You'll never truly ask him to save you until you believe him about the fact that you're dying. You'll never look up until you know that you're dying without him. There it is. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ from heaven. You are dying. That's the bad news. You want the good news? I do. You want the good news? You don't have to. I got good news and I got bad news. The, the bad news is you're dying. No exceptions in the room. Some of you think, not me. I eat broccoli. <laughs> you're just crazy and dying. It's the only difference. The good news is you don't have to. One of my favorite preachers, not just because he's a great preacher, I just have, every time I've been around him, I find him being an incredible man of God, humble man. I went to a minister's retreat several years ago. His name's Wally Rendell. Some of you know him. He used to be in Lexington. I think he's over in Nicholasville now. He said something years ago to me I've never forgotten. He said this, May I always preach as a dying man to dying men. May I never forget who I am and who you are. May I always preach as a dying man, knowing that I'm dying. And that all of you listening to me are also dying. And see, once you get that, you'll understand John 3.16. And you'll understand why we need somebody to look up to. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who looks upon him would have eternal life. You see, the cure to death was sent from the Father into the kingdoms of men. It's free. Listen, it's not just good news. The cure to death was sent from the Father into the kingdoms of men, and it's free. There's no deductibles, there's no copay. It's free. Free for us. But I got to tell you, it was not free for the father it cost his only son now now with that background let's put it together i want to read everybody knows john 3 16 i'm trying to give you the context so you'll know john 3 16 let's go 10 through 16 let me put the pieces together jesus replied you are a respected jewish teacher he's talking to nicodemus and yet you don't understand these things i assure you we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how will you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down 
from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Do you see why context is so important? Do you see the why and do you see the how now? Do you? We were all dying from snake bite and God sent His only Son from heaven so that we could have someone to look up to, to believe in, to heal us, to cure us, to give us hope that out in front of us is something more than a dark hole called the grave. So I want to tell you something profound. If I ask you a question, do you know the cure to death? I'd get a lot of answers. Some of you would say Jesus. Some of you would say the blood of the Lamb. The resurrection of the dead. But I want to make it simple. Do you know what the cure to death is? Life. It works every time. The cure to death is life. And what is life? You see, right now, we've all got it. Life. You're breathing it. Right now, I'm breathing the breath of life. You're breathing the breath of life. When God created Adam in the garden, He formed him from the dust of the earth, and He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. We're all breathing the breath of life. Let's just all do it together, out loud to breathe, okay? Some of y'all don't sound very good. I heard raspy in your voice. We're all right now breathing in and breathing out the breath of life. And you know what happens when you stop breathing that breath of life? When you stop breathing? You die. And you know when all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put that life back in you again? Because there's only one source of life. And it is the cure for death. And if you've got life, it cures death 100% of the time. And God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son so that whoever would believe in Him, whoever would look up at Him, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him would not stop breathing air but they'd have eternal life. Not, not 60 years, not 120 years. Eternal life. This is big. You see, everyone from Adam's seed has been bitten by this serpent. And we're all going to die unless we can connect ourselves to this life source. And it doesn't come from, listen, it cannot come from anyone from Adam's seed. Because everyone from Adam's seed has the curse of death, which means it's already in there. Why? Because they've all been bitten by the serpent. Except one. Jesus is life. And let me tell you something. Jesus is life and the snake bite of the serpent is death. Jesus is the only man that wasn't bitten by the serpent. Do you know that? I told you last Sunday that Jesus is the only man of all the billions of people who have ever lived on the earth whose daddy's 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 daddy is an Adam. 
Now that's profound. But let me give you a second profound truth. He's the only person ever lived on the earth that the serpent didn't bite. Never got him. Tried to get him. Tried to get him in the wilderness during the 40 days. Tried to get him in the Garden of Gethsemane in the final hours, but couldn't bite him. In fact, Genesis says that one day the seed of woman will crush the serpent's head. But you will strike his heel. That's a picture of the cross. But listen, Jesus is the only man that wasn't bitten by the serpent. Jesus is the only man that wasn't dying from snake bite. He was the only man ever lived on earth that was not destined to die from a snake bite. And yet he came down from heaven to take our death to the grave so that he could turn around and give us the breath of life. That's the great transaction called the gospel. Through faith, we gave Jesus our death in exchange for his life. Through faith, we gave Jesus our death in exchange for Jesus handing us his life. What a deal. And you would turn that down? Only one reason you would ever turn that down. You don't believe. Let me prove it to you. Romans chapter 3. For everyone is sinned. Guess what? We've all been bitten. Everyone is sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declared that we are righteous. How? He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. What is the penalty of sin? You know, death. Through Jesus, He freed us from the penalty of sin. Verse 25, For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. That's the cross. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus is sacrificed, sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when He held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For He was looking forward and including them in what He would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate His righteousness, for He Himself is fair and just. And He declares sinners to be right in His sight when they do what? He declares sinners to become right in His sight when they do what? When they believe in Jesus. Have you ever thought about why faith secures life? I have. You know what? I've often thought, why didn't he make it a more physical act? Why didn't he say, why didn't he say that you can be made right with God, you can have forgiveness of your sins, you can get eternal life if you go and be baptized in the Jordan River? He didn't say that, did he? Or maybe he could have said, you know what? You have to go to a certain mountain in a certain month of a certain year uh, a pilgrimage. And in that, you have to fast for four days. You know, he didn't do that, did he? Or maybe he says that you, you have to do this. You have to take a life of poverty, give up all your possessions, live in a tent. He didn't do that. In fact, what he said, the one thing that would make you right with God is believe. Why? Now, I've thought a long time about this. And I've come to this conclusion. Why? 
Because if he said go to Jordan River, not everybody would have the means to do so. If he said go to a mountain or he said do this or do that, not everybody would have the ability. So God, in his great wonder, chose something that everybody can do. Believe. I came to this conclusion that I can influence what you believe and you can influence what I believe. But when all is said and done, when everything is finished, guess what? Terry Cooper will believe what Terry Cooper decides to believe. Because that, that's down inside of me. You can't reach that handle. And there's a handle inside of you, and I can't reach that handle. It's mine. You got one. So God, in his great wisdom, decided that I will do, I will make salvation free, and I will make it to where every human being on earth could reach it. If they hear the gospel and believe the gospel, they can believe the gospel and find salvation. Do you want to make this complicated? You don't have to. Jesus in John chapter 10 addresses people who want to understand but can't. Let me prove it to you. John 10, 6. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand. They didn't understand what he meant. In other words, like Nicodemus, how can I, how can I be born again? How? It doesn't make any sense. So he gives, an, he gives another example. Verse 7. So he explains it to them. I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers. But the true sheep did not listen to thieves and robbers. Didn't listen to them. Yes, I am the gate, and those who come in through me, those who come in through me will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from what? Death. Death. They will come in and go freely and will find good pastures. How long does this come in and go freely good pasture thing last? 60 years, 70 years, 80 years? How long does this come in, go freely into good pastures last? Forever. But there's another spirit. I wish I could just stop there, but the truth is this. There's another spirit. He's a liar, and he also came down from heaven. Do you know that? That serpent, that snake that bit Adam and Eve, he also came down from heaven. But he's not going to be allowed back into heaven. There's a time in his future where he will not get to return to heaven. No, his downward spiral has just begun. Listen to Jesus describe the contrast between him, the one who came from heaven, and the serpent, the other spirit that came from heaven. What a contrast. Next verse. Verse 10. The thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose, Jesus says, is to give them a rich and satisfying life. One came from heaven to kill you. Do you understand? One came from heaven to kill you. That's the serpent's bite. And the other came from heaven to give you a rich and satisfying, abundant life. One came down from heaven and died for you to give you eternal life. The other came down from heaven and to bite you with the poison that will lead to eternal death. 
The serpent bit Adam in the Garden of Eden. We all came from Adam, so guess what? We all, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, have that poison of death inside of us when we are born. Kill, steal, destroy. That's what the serpent's poison does if not treated. I love how the New American Standard Bible translates verse 10. Let me read it from that version. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you may have life. Who would turn that down? Come on, let's be simple. Who would turn that down? Unbelievers turn it down every day. Not just life, but you can have it abundantly. Abundantly means forever, and forever is a long time to be anywhere. Who would turn it down? What an offer from the one who came down from heaven. Who would turn this down? Unbelievers turn it down every time. Unbelievers aren't going to. Future tense turn it down. They've already turned it down by not believing. Turn down what, Terry? Turn down what? The cure for death. The cure for death is life. The cure for death is Jesus. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Why did he lift up the serpent in the wilderness? Because death, 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 death. They're dying. But if you'll look up, if you'll look up, the snake bites cured. Why did Jesus connect Moses' story in the wilderness to his cross? Because you're dying. Would you turn down the cure to death? Why do you think Jesus came down from heaven? Many believe he came down to make their life difficult. To restrict their freedom. I get people telling me all the time, this old church thing, you know, this just y'all got all these rules and this, do's and do nots. Is that you? Do you feel like he came from heaven to give you a bunch of religious rules and watch you die because you couldn't follow those rules? Almost no one would say that out loud, but I've met a lot of people who live their lives like that's exactly what they believe. Did you read the verse following John 3.16? I told you we're going to study the context. Did you read the one after 3.16? Here we go. Let's read it together. 16 and 17. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world. But to save the world through him. He didn't come down from heaven to crush you. He came down from heaven to be crushed for you. My goodness, what a difference. You see, a lot of people have this image that God restricts your ability to experience the fullness of life. That you have in yourself abundant life. And if we could get him out of the way, you'd get to experience the reality of an abundant life. You have this idea that God sent his son to the world to crush you. In fact, the opposite is true. He sent in the son into the world to be crushed for you. He didn't come down to judge you. Your snake bite had already judged you. You're going to die. You and I were born snake bitten. Left untreated, everyone carries that venom. It's called death. 
Jesus came down from heaven with the anti-venom to the serpent's bite. Jesus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, Jesus will be lifted up. And this, what, what did the serpent do in the wilderness? It was the anti-venom. The cross is the anti-venom. It cures death. And who would turn it down? You don't believe it. Jesus came down from heaven with the cure to death. The cure to death is what? Life. You tell me where else you can get it. Where else are you going to get it? Oh, he is a judge. But he didn't come down to judge you or me. He came to save us. He came to save the whole world. He is the only son. He is the only savior. He and he is your only chance to have life. Eternal life. He is your only chance to escape death. He is your only chance to disconnect yourself from the serpent who is headed for hell. He is your only chance to disconnect your, your life from the poison seed of Satan. He is the only chance. That serpent named Satan and all who follow him. Listen carefully to these words. That serpent named Satan and everyone who follows him are going to hell. They're going to hell. It's not an unconscious existence. It's a conscious existence in utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Maybe you thought death was unconsciousness. Maybe you thought death was fade to black nothingness. Well, you haven't read this book. Jesus is God in the flesh. Come down from heaven, and do you know why? He came from heaven because we were all dying. How can Jesus' life, His death, His burial, His resurrection save my life? Believe Him. Believe Him. Believing is called faith, and faith connects our temporary life with Jesus' eternal life. Are you ready to take on the next verse of Jesus? Are you sure? Are, are you really sure? We've done 16 and now 17. Are you ready for 18? Say, uh-huh. That's pitiful. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in Him. Somebody say hallelujah. There is no judgment for anyone who believes in Him. You're going to want that one day. Let me assure you of that. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in Him. But anyone who does not believe in Him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. No judgment. No courtroom. No need for me to try to explain why I'm a sinner. As if God didn't already know why I'm a sinner. Why no judgment? Listen carefully. Very important today. Why no judgment? Because God's judgment was already rendered on the cross when he struck down his own son. Judgment days for believers has already occurred. Do you know that? There's no judgment for those who are in Christ. Why? Judgment day already came and left. It was on the cross of Calvary. 
The cross was judgment day for believers in Jesus Christ. The cross was the execution day. But someone stepped in and took your place. Someone stepped in and took your death and gave you life. His name's Jesus. The prophet Isaiah describes it. And what's amazing to me, here, here, if you want to know the truth of Scripture, you want to know why we stand up here and say, I believe that what I hold in my hand is the only physical source of absolute truth on this planet. The prophet Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And yet he is going to write in exact detail everything about the coming cross. 700 years in advance. How? I want to read to you what Judgment Day looked like. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not yours. It's the one Jesus did for you. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed His powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about His appearance, nothing to attract us to Him. He was despised. He was rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God. A, punish, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on Him, the Lord laid on His sons, the sin of us all. God the Father put on Jesus the Son, my sin, your sin. Judgment day was that day. If you believe. Verse 7, He was oppressed and treated harshly. Yet He never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong, and he had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him. Can you comprehend these words? It was the Lord's good plan to crush his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Verse 10, it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he'll be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servants will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels and he bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. He came down from heaven and he interceded for me. He came down from heaven and he experienced death for me. 
He came down from heaven and was lifted up to the cross for me. Did you notice how that chapter in Isaiah began? Verse 1. Who has believed our message? That's it. Who? Who believes? Some do, some don't. Which one are you? Who has believed our message? Is, has God revealed His powerful arm that He saves and gives life to believers? Has God revealed to you today the cure for death? It's life. It's a person. His name's Jesus. The serpent has been defeated by the man who came from heaven. Somebody say hallelujah. The serpent has been defeated by the man who came from heaven. Have you connected your life to this Jesus by being born again of the water, born again of the Spirit? Don't just hang out John 3.16. It is a revelation of God's love. But look at John chapter 3, for he said, No one will enter the kingdom of heaven unless you have been born of the water and the Spirit. Have you? I close with this. In the middle of that world-changing prophecy of Isaiah lies one verse. One verse. I'll close today by revealing the reality of verse 9. And I repeat, 700 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Isaiah writes what I just read. But in the middle of that is verse 9. Let me read it again. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone. He was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Now, how in the world, 700 years before Jesus is born, do they know, does Isaiah know, he's going to be buried in a rich man's grave? Do you know what happened to the body of Jesus on that Friday evening we call Good Friday? I want you to know what happened. Because right now, I'm going to show you the connection between Isaiah 53 and John chapter 3. I want you to know what happened. So let's go to John 19. We're moving from John 3, early in the ministry of Jesus, to John 19. He has just been crucified on the cross. Verse 38. After the cross, afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came to and took the body away and who was with him? With him came, said out loud, Nicodemus. That's that guy in chapter 3. With Joseph was a guy named Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made with myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in, in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Who laid Jesus there? Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, who is going to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 53. And who's the other dude? Nicodemus. So here's why I add that. What does that tell you about Nicodemus? You see, when I read John chapter 3, it doesn't say Nicodemus got it or he didn't get it. 
In fact, Nicodemus was struggling, right? How can I, a grown man, be born again? How can I enter a second time in my mother's womb? Jesus looks at him and says, if you don't understand earthly things, how are you going to ever understand heavenly things? And yet, I go all the way to the end of the Gospel of John, and I find out something. Are you ready? Nicodemus believed. He's come out of the shadows. He's coming out of the shadows. You see, it was Nicodemus' buddies that had put Jesus to death on the cross. And Nicodemus obviously didn't care because he's openly taken down the body of Jesus. He's not ashamed anymore. John chapter 7, I don't have time to read it to you, reveals that Nicodemus in another scene stood up for Jesus among the Jewish council. As they mo- and they mocked Nicodemus. They belittled him, but he didn't budge. Why? 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 Because Nicodemus became a believer. Nicodemus believed God loved the world so much. Do you? Is this your story? You see, here's my conclusion. This is it. See, I'm convinced that every one of us who believe this should be our life. We portray this in our life. It's, it's not that you put it on the bumper sticker of your car, or you stick it to the shopping cart in Walmart and let everybody think you're nuts. What? That we're living out loud, John 3.16. We're living out loud that God loved the world so much that He gave His only Son. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who are being saved from death. Are you ashamed? Are you embarrassed? I'm going to tell you what, Nicodemus, the first time in John chapter 3, he comes out at night to see Jesus. But he's not coming out after dark the next time. You know why? He is not ashamed. He has seen that this man, Jesus, is the cure to death. He gets it. Do you? Do you understand what's at stake here today? Life and death. There's a cure to death. It's called life. I'll ask Chad to come out for the invitation. Who would turn down the cure to death? Who? They will be the ones who will spend forever dead. Forever dead. That's not unconscious. Listen, I'm going to tell you the truth today. That's not an unconscious existence. It's a conscious existence without hope, without life. Weeping, gnashing, misery forever. Jesus cures death. Have you been born again? Have you been born of the water, born of the Spirit? Would you walk out that door today and say, I refuse to cure to death. It's on you. It won't be on me. How much time you got left? How much time you got left? If there's a loud shout and a trumpet blast and Jesus comes for his bride, you going? Believers are going. If a car runs over you out here and you die in a 127, you ready? How much time you got left? Do you think it'd be a good idea to accept the cure to death before that day? Maybe one day. Today, the blood of the Lamb offers eternal life to anyone who will believe Him. The invitation's open to stand.